Hey everybody, this is Frank Rains Jr. from History Through the Eyes of Faith. Just wanted to give you a heads up to check the link in our bio for Kofi. It's a way that you can go and support the podcast if you like what you're hearing, and also a way to find some merchandise and some extra content. So check out the link in our bio, head over to Kofi. It's a great way to support the podcast. Did I miss anything, Ange? Oh, add in. You can also comment there, ask questions, and join us in a chat room. Oh, wow. And there's so that you can chat with us. Anyway, check out Kofi. The link is in our bio. I'm passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, everybody. This is Frank. Say hi, Angie. Hi. <laughs> that was good. I thought about starting off like this right here, talking real quick, something like that. I was listening back to some I was wondering other... when your voice was. I thought we'd get one that time. Well, that was good. I was listening to one of the previous episodes, and um, was I singing when I started? Something. Anyway, hey, producer Wes is here. Say hi, Wes. Hey, Wes. Hey. Yeah. And... Um, it, this is History Through the Eyes of Faith, episode 69, uh, the podcast, and it's it's really good. Glad you're here. If you want a history lesson, you know, we're, we're, we're actually, we're basically creating a textbook, an audio textbook. Would a you little agree? bit more fun than a textbook, I hope. Yeah, Maybe I it's definitely. a textbook, Maybe that's cool. not a... Like as you turn the pages over here on the sides, a little block that gets this cool little backstory of this and a little yeah, side I, note I probably, of that. I think you said in another episode of an encyclopedia or you said something. Yeah, like where you can go and we've done enough now that you can just pick out, oh, I want to learn some about that time. I want to learn some about that time. Or if you're like, how in the world does this all fit together? Then you can just go all the way through. Do you have, I mean, I know you can look at the titles, but do you have access to edit? the titles yes so you could go back and put a parentheses of the years i could but some of them aren't years but along those lines i am working on a way to have a list out there so that people could you know i don't know whether it'll go in the sh it won't go in the show notes but it'll um show notes but we'll have uh anyway a and, and Kofi will probably be where that ends up because there's a lot of different ways to put things on Kofi. So we'll have it on our social media feeds and things like that. Some yeah. of the titles you can tell what they're about. Some of the titles you could definitely add years to so that people would see. Yeah. Well, I mean, like if you were going to browse through all right. six, so far 69 episodes, you could see, okay, well, this goes from here to here. This, to here. I mean, and not, all, not every episode might have years. Exactly. Exactly. But, but you you'd still be able to. Yeah. I think you should do that. It's very like, um, like from episode two through episode, I think it's 14, maybe 16 is the, is covering the time period of the Old Testament. Okay. So in that time period, if there are events outside of the Bible 
they're dropped in there too. So it's not just the Old Testament, primarily heavy. Mm -hmm. And then you've got some episodes that are the time in between the two. That's where we get into Alexandra, Cleopatra, you know, all that stuff. And then you start with the... Um, did you say Alexandra? I did. because And I that confused just, me. I'm sorry. Because I was going, Alexandra? She's Alexandria. A, I'm sure there was all... I'm sure there was an Alexandra and Ale- Alexander and an Alexandria and Alex and... <laughs> it, she, you meant Alexander the Great. Yes. Um, but I was already thinking Cleopatra, uh, so they got <laughs> married in there. Which, by the way, they did get married. No, no they, they didn't. No, they didn't. She no, married didn't. two other... I mean, she was, she was the... Uh, Significant other of two other major I'm gonna go people ahead and in history. Guess, I'm going to go ahead and guess that one of the episodes that talked about Cleopatra was at around 13 or 14 or maybe 28. What was the episode? Because you just said episodes two, three. It would be somewhere between 16 and 20. Okay. Um, but I now think. we're. No, but, maybe further. But now we're like around the 900s, would you say, is where we are? 800s? Yeah, we're, we're covering. Like a big chunk between 800 to 1,000. We're doing a lot of things that are happening in the 9th and 10th centuries. Which I have something. I won't tell it now. I mean, I can. But in our last episode, we had a very fast discussion about Vikings. Yeah, and we're coming back to them. So I'm not going to let you we steal are? any thunder. But you can say whatever. No, no, no. I'll wait. I'll wait when we go back to it. Because I think we ended 68 with you, Sam. When we get back, we will talk about, and it was more like of a... It was maps, and we're going to come to the maps, maps, too. But Maps. So um, we're getting caught up. It's been... I don't know. How long has it been since we... We don't need to define it, but, but it feels like... I don't been, know how long it's been in time. Maybe three weeks, but a whole lot has happened in life. In, in life? Yeah. Really? You say that like... It, emotionally, happened. to me, it feels like a lot has happened. And actually, a lot has happened, too. But Well, I'd like to hear about some of that because I know that you have a second grandchild. We talked about that. So since then, even yes. more stuff. Yeah. We went on a trip. We went on. We were gone for six days. So that'll come up. And as we talk, I've got some hmm. stories from the trip. And, and um, I remember the trip. I usually see social media posts. Yeah, I had a little bit at the beginning. You saw it around Tim's birthday. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we continued on a trip. And then um, schools uh, started back up. So that means Tim's back at work, back off campus. And I mean, at campus, out of the house. So that creates a different environment. Been We've hosted a lot of things at our house. So there's been something going on all the time. We've hosted a lot of things and a lot of animals. We've been a little pet hotel for the last week or so one night this week we had three big dogs and four inside cats and an outside cat so mm. <laughs> and keeping everybody so happy that smelled it's, really good no there was the smell was no problem whatsoever the the stress on which animal was was interesting How they were doing yeah. yeah so that was it so just a lot of stuff like that and then um you know we've had some sadness in our extended family yeah so that was anyway just Everything's good, guys. It's just, you know, yeah, you live life. life and you go through difficult times. I've had a little, I've had uh, had a cool little experience last week that wasn't necessarily a surprise. I knew I was going to do this thing, but, and actually we, we talked about it uh, before on this podcast a year ago. And I can talk about it or we can just jump into whatever you want to talk about or jump into the content or however you want to do it. Well, you just talk for a minute and I can come, I, I got plenty of time to tell my stuff. Oh, well. This past weekend was my 
second year to uh, help out with the Gatlinburg Songwriters Festival. Oh, that's right. I saw you were doing that. And running sound for a little venue, which yeah. when I say little venue, it's a it was a, a hotel lobby lounge. Were you back in the same place you were last year? Yes. Oh, so now you're experienced. I'm experienced with that place and, and what to do. This year there was a new soundboard that I had to kind of make sure I knew how to run. Um Provided by Bose, a little shout out to Bose. They did the sound. They 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 donated all the sound for the festival, and um, well, not gifted it, but donated it for it to be used and promoted. And um, I had to learn how to run it with three riders that were also players. So I had those channels coming in there, and and it was a quite uh, an experience. I can say that. I knew what I was getting into because I did it last year, and you're reading something to get ready. So I, I really want you to react to what I'm saying, but okay, since I'm you're sorry. not listening yeah, the, the, to what I'm saying. It's turnabout fair play, folks, because you know how many times this happens the other way? I know. A lot. Yeah. And and what you're... Okay, I'm good. If you want me to banter, I will. No, I keep mean, going. I'm, I was just... I was answering our question about episodes. Go ahead. No, the point is, I knew what I was getting into, that I was going to be... If you're familiar with songwriters, writers in the round, it's a big thing here in Nashville. You know, three songwriters each take a turn singing a song yeah, that yeah. they wrote. I am familiar. I've been to a couple of those I now. know, but I'm letting the listeners know. Right. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that was called writers in the round. Now I know. Yeah, that's what it's called. It's in the round like you take turns. Right. And so this was a songwriter festival. So there were new songwriters telling their story, you know, Learning how to write songs better from the people that write songs really well and also sharing the songs that they've written. So there was about five, six venues around Gatlinburg that this was happening all day. The venue that I was in, it would hap it was happening from 12 noon till 9 p.m. So I was running sound for three writers every hour for nine hours straight for two days. Was it three different writers every hour? Yeah. Or how many? Yeah. So, so you had like 27 writers. And yeah. Now, the next day, there might have been somebody from the first, first day because they move around yeah. different venues. Yeah. But I think that was only once. I think I only had one writer that was back the second day that she had gone to the other places. But if you think about it, um, I, I did the math. An hour of three writers was about 12 songs. Mm -hmm. Okay, each of them did four. Yeah. Times nine <laughs> is what I listened to on one day. <laughs> and then again on the second day. And So you had some entertaining moments. I had some entertaining. Were there uh, moments well, when at you... The end of, at the end of the night, they had the top writers in, like mm -hmm. people that you would know. And some of them were also artists. Right. And there were songs that you definitely would know. And you're like, oh my gosh, that guy wrote that song. I can sing along with this guy. And he wrote it. You know, that was pretty cool. But around two or three in the afternoon. <laughs> when you like, got the lunch lull anyway. Oh my gosh. Did you have trouble holding it back? <laughs> no, I. it wasn't that I was like, want to laugh. <laughs> I just wanted to scream. <laughs> it, it was okay. So here I challenge you next time. Yeah. Write out your comedy bit since well, you I've, can't uh, do yeah. it out loud. Just write it. Down I've created it. I've yeah. created it. If we, I mean, we're ten minutes into this episode. Yeah. So we're not going to do it right now. But, but I have created. I, I will just say this. Whenever one of the the new writers would say the title of their song. 
and then the first words out of their mouth was the title. Yeah. I was like, uh-uh, this is not going to go, this is not going to go well. It can't this one's be that called one. In the Morning. In the morning. I'm like, no. <laughs> no. You're not a good songwriter. <laughs> or maybe they're just not a good song titler. No. <laughs> it's not just the title. Like that was a consistent. You knew if that happened, this, the yeah, writing I, was not going to be good. I give them a lot of credit for the courage, for the skill. You know, For I'm going not, for their dream. Like, I, hey, yeah, I want to write songs. Right. I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah, and I've not. I have not tried to write a song. I hope people are giving us the same credit for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I give them a lot of credit for I give them credit putting for it for out trying. there. But at some point, somebody needs to say, you're not good. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Anyway, they don't want to hear it either. All right. <laughs> I, I have more about that experience, but it was a really cool, it was a, two very long days and, and, and somewhat exhausting, but it was kind of fun. To you know, and being back for the second year, there were some big name writers that remembered me from last year. Oh, that's cool. You know, and uh, matter of fact, uh, I got back in town on last week, and then I was driving around. My boss, who had come in from out of town, I was driving him around Nashville, and we were in the twelfth South area. And I saw one of the writers like walking down the street. I didn't say hey to her, but she would have been like, "Hey, what? What? You know?" Because she was one that was there for two years, and she's she's kind of well-known in some circles and and uh so that was interesting that i yeah. saw her walking around town cool cool so i have one little tidbit before we get in just as, all right as a, so we um our tim had his birthday and our children gifted him and i with tickets to a st louis cardinals game in st louis with the yankees that's a side story we can come back it was wonderful great seats i'll come back to that but here we are in st louis right and now we're going to spend the next, so we, we go in, we see the game, we spend the night in St. Louis, and now we can, we've got six days and we're going to travel around, and I've had to plan out our route. Well, I just thought you would appreciate this. I could not be within 40 miles of Bob's Kettle Corn. I was about to say, you better get you some <laughs> kettle corn, and there better be some kettle corn in that so, mystery bag. So we went west for, we went west just to get corn, and turned around and came back and did the rest of our trip to the east well, of St. Louis. Well, it probably wasn't that far. No, it was about 40 minutes on the interstate. And, yeah. but we get there. I, I know we got to go on. We get there and it was, it was like when they were having heat warnings and all this stuff was being on the news. So it was uh, probably a hundred degrees. We get there, we pull up to the flying J. Bob's is all zipped up. I'm like, no, uh-uh. Did you? So I go into the flying J and the girls are there and I'm like, Where's Bob? She, they go, oh, it's too hot for him. It's too hot. So you can't be out there doing kettle corn this heat. It's like, how long has he been on? She goes, oh, yes, yesterday and today. And I'm like, man, I didn't confess to coming from Tennessee. I said, we just drove over from St. Louis just to get some corn. And then this little girl goes behind the counter. She's like, well, I can get you some corn if you've got cash, which he always asked for cash anyway. So we had gotten cash. We're like, yeah. So she slipped in the tent, got us some. That's okay. There's so many levels of that. It's ridiculous. <laughs> because, like, just give one level. Well, I mean, the fact that I can get you some corn. <laughs> you got cash. I can go out there and get she you some corn. She took an envelope and she wrote, it made me wonder because I'm pretty sure it's Bob's kettle corn, but she wrote Mr. Bill. <laughs> she said, now there's more where that came from. <laughs> no, then she kept going. 
Uh, it's three times nine, 27. She kept asking the girls around her. We were going, yeah, it's 27. It's like she didn't trust us. I don't know. I don't know if it is. <laughs> what if it's 30? And I just took, anyway. It wow. was a hoot. Well, you were just tell, let's just tell more stories. Do we need to talk about Vikings? Yeah, we do. We got a lot to cover today. And All I went right. back and looked at our episode list, and it's episode 14 that is a review that ends the time period which of which the Old Testament covers. Okay. Yeah, but then there was a couple episodes after 14 of the time period between the Old Testament and... Oh, more than a couple. That goes all the way up to 23. Yeah. So from 15 to 23 is the time period and the review of everything up to that point. So she would have been in like 23 and 24. Uh, Cleopatra's in 21. 21. Kevin Chesney's in 22. Kevin Chesney. I bet was Kevin part of the trip? You know, we thought about it, but he didn't make it this mm. time. After we got, I'm like, did you think about bringing Kevin? Tim was like, I thought about it, but we didn't do it. All right, well, let's talk about Vikings. Okay, so before, I'm sorry for the teaser, but before we jump back into the Vikings, I discovered a new source. You know, I'm all into the Wondrium, mm-hmm. uh, great courses. Great courses. Okay, so there's a, a there's a great course or a course on Wondrium, whichever way you want to call it, called Charlemagne, Father of Europe. And so I went back, and it's the whole series of lectures. It's 10 or 12 lectures just on Charlemagne. So in listening to some of those and reviewing some things, I found some more information that um, helps undergird what we've already said, and it's kind of some interesting details that will then, of, of things that we've been talking about since the beginning and will continue to talk about up to now that I, that happened or that what life was like in those areas during the time of Charlemagne. Okay. So I wanted to come back to that a little bit. So this is the Wondrium course, Charlemagne, father of Europe, which is done by Philip Dayleader, who is on the faculty at William and Mary. So, um, we, you remember we mentioned that Charlemagne was not literate and you questioned mm-hmm. that. So there's a lot of writings about how intellectually curious he was and how and and there's stuff that goes into in this lectures talking about how he understood Latin but he couldn't write Latin. So he was really in my opinion able to hold a lot of information in his head. I'm very visual. So not being able to read or write and still to keep all those ideas and suggest new ideas and all of that. And he was very even though he himself did not write, he was very big on having all of his things written down, you know, like mm-hmm. the rules, the laws, and those kind and of grocery things. lists. Yeah. Yes. So literacy was less common um, in Charlemagne's time than it had been during the days of the Roman Empire. So we don't need to think that it had always been the case that people weren't literate because we know with the Greek academies, all the things going on during the Roman Empire, there was much less much more literacy, but urban life and commerce, which are the motors that drive literacy rates upward in the ancient world, strong cities, a lot of trade. They had, because the strong cities and a lot of trade had gone away, literacy, literacy had a much more modest place in Charlemagne's lands yeah. than in the Roman Empire. But there were pockets of literacy that were certainly present, um, However, it was predominantly clerical, meaning the religious vocations required literacy. So those who were in religious vocations, such as abbots, bishops, monks, priests, had lit- training 
in reading and writing. And that was where that was happening. So considering that, and also considering Western civilization in general, and we'll come back to this as we get a few hundred more years down the road, but there's no text whose accuracy and correctness were as crucial as what text would be the most crucial that it is accurate and correct. The Bible. Yes, two points, Frank. So Alcuin, do you remember Alcuin was Charlemagne's right-hand guy, and he was Mm -hmm. the head of the school and all that? Which, by the way, I didn't see any response to my title suggestions, but go ahead. Yeah, I haven't responded. Alcuin was in that. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't think it will. We'll see. He worked on this project. Okay, so he was working on this project of helping with literacy. So shortly after Charlemagne became emperor in 801, he didn't become emperor in 801. This happened in 801. The Anglo-Saxon scholar, Alcuin, presented a revised version of the Bible to Charlemagne with various grammatical, spelling, and punctuation mistakes corrected to make the text more easily understood. Also, there was another guy named Theodulf, 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 T-H-E-O-D-U-L-F. I got to say it several times to think about it. Who worked on the Bible um, with an eye toward making it more practical. He was a writer, a poet, and the Bishop of Orleans from 798 to 1818, which was during Charlemagne's reign. Wait, and also 798 to when? I said 1818. I like to throw that one in there in front of that eight. 798 to 818, okay, which was during Charlemagne's We're reign. 20 years old. No, that was when he was the Bishop of Orleans, oh, those 20 years. years. Okay. Yeah, he. it says here he was born somewhere around 750 to 760. They're not sure exactly. Um, so it was during, he was Bishop during Charlemagne's reign and also the beginning of Louis, his Charlemagne's son. And he was a key member of the Carolingian Renaissance. Okay. So before Theodolf started working on the Bible. The Bible was more of a notional concept than a physical book. And I think this is interesting. I'd never read this before. Mm. Individual books of the Bible Bible circulated separately. So I had never, or if I did, I don't remember learning. So the Bible was a concept of a bunch of books, but it wasn't all together in one book. Exactly. Like all of these books are authoritative and they are seen as the canon. We talked about that. That happened hundreds of years before, but they're not traveling together necessarily. You might only have, which was interesting Mm -hmm. to me. So rather than being bound together in a single volume, they were so obtaining all of the Bible's individual books was a challenge to get all of them. To make it easier for churches and others to access the entire Bible, Theodulf sponsored the production of single volumes that contained all of the Bible's individual canonical books, yet were manageable in size because the text had been written in very small letters. Mm-hmm. So Theodulf's innovation proved to be popular, and henceforth, complete Bibles became more common. He said, you know what we could do? We could write smaller what do you think? <laughs> yeah. And then that way we could get more in this book. And we could actually put them all together where you could have them all. Pretty cool idea, huh? Mm-hmm. So outside of the Carolingian court, monasteries began copying manuscripts in greater quantities during Charlemagne's reign. So part of the Carolingian Renaissance was to speed up 
the rate, okay? The production of the Bible. Yes, this process accelerated as Charlemagne rewarded his court scholars with appointments as abbots of various monasteries. So he would take his scholars and then appoint them as over a monastery. And so then that person as the leader at the monastery would up the production, you know, encourage the monasteries to do more. So um, as the court scholars dispersed, they spread the Carolingian Renaissance's goals and tools to various parts of the empire. The work of copying initiated during Charlemagne's reign continued through the ninth century past his own death. One sign of increased copying is the number of surviving manuscripts. Some 7,000 manuscripts survive from Carolingian kingdoms of the Franks, circa 750 to 900, compared with only some 500 manuscripts from the much longer reign of the Moravian kingdom of the Franks, which was, the, was Pepin and the ones before. Okay, so that's not just I don't think that's just referring to it's I'm almost positive. It's not just referring to biblical manuscripts, but you can see the uptick in production. Mm -hmm. So in that uptick in production, they had they did some helpful innovations. Things were innovated. The desire to create easily readable texts and to prevent errors led to important changes for context by the eighth century. So which was just before Charlemagne. Many different scripts had emerged across Europe, and some of these scripts look quite different from one another. Now, what do we mean when we say scripts? S C R I P T. Text, print, well, print a book. Print, like, like what about on your uh, computer? Fonts. Yes, like fonts. So people were writing letters in different ways, which made it confusing to read. Yeah. Okay? So there were lots of them all over the place. And so each individual, play, just like people have different dialects and they have different ways of saying things and they have different accents, they have different ways of writing well, a like letter. If, if I wrote something and then you wrote something that would look different. Yeah. So, see, I hadn't thought about this. Everybody's doing handwriting, but if it's all in their own handwriting, then you're going to have mm -hmm. trouble discerning it yeah, sometimes, like I, right? Yeah, like a note that my son wrote, I had a hard time understanding what he was saying. Yeah. So teaching these monks, deciding how to write, what script we're going to use, and then teaching monks to all use the same script was a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Y'all need to work on your letters. So in Charlemagne's monastery, starting in the 770s, there began the emergence of the script known as Carolingian Minuscule. That's, I, I use that one a lot on my, my But isn't that interesting? Because we know now why it was minuscule, because it had to be little, because they're getting this Bible all Either in one Either use Ariel, Calibri, Times New Roman, or, or Carolingian Minuscule, okay. which is the name of this episode. <laughs> so no single monastery created it. Rather, scribes working in various monasteries and familiar with one another's work seem collectively to have built on one another's innovations. So the, they were innovating together and coming up with this Carolingian minuscule. The new script was simple, clear, and easy to write. Spreading throughout Charlemagne's lands, this new script slowly displaced some of the regional and local scripts that had dominated beforehand. It was becoming easier for people across Europe to understand one another's writings. Other helpful improvements that Carolingian scribes made included putting spaces between words rather than running all of one's words together. Mm, they write with all their words together. So, like, that's coming from the time of Charlemagne, putting spaces between words. Wow. That's probably a difficult to read. Yeah. Distinguishing between uppercase and lowercase letters. 
Like that helps us know where to stop and where to end is those. And a lot of times now, the recap that you know, I know we're going back. We were at, in this episode, we were going We're you're doing a little bit of recap and you s- said you found this new. I'm getting I'm, I'm putting some more details back into what yeah. we've already covered. OK, and the details have happen to do with generating copies of the Bible and why. Right. Yeah. Or how. And yeah. How. Just in language in general, like putting spaces between words, but also at, at some point further down the road, we're going to look back and do like an overview of the history of the Bible. And I just thought these were some interesting pieces to go ahead and throw in here, you yeah. know, because yeah. we talked about the Carolingian Renaissance, as they called it. So distinguishing, putting spaces between words, distinguishing between upper and lower class letters and using a more standardized form of punctuation. In fact, this is your little trivia to take away, guys. Remember it next time you have Trivia Night. Knowledgeable scholars have expressed their belief that the question mark made its first appearance in Charlemagne's lifetime. Trivia question. In what year did, in what century did the question mark make its first appearance? The 7th. To the 8th. The 8th to the 9th. Yeah. Mm. 700 to 800. Okay. Charlemagne himself. I'd like, that, I'd like a, a sketch around that. So I was thinking. <laughs> Perhaps. So if we know we would need to read something with an inflection, maybe we should make a little mark at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Just like I did just then. That's one of the things about speaking French. Oh, by the way, that's even curious because this is France. And when I took French course, one of the things they taught us, when we speak in English, our sentences go down. Like we mm-hmm. end on the down, right? When well, you learn to just speak French. Canada. When you learn to speak France, French, it's up. Well, maybe up, the, well there's up. French Canadian. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, so the I mean, way you know I, I mean? dealt with that in class was like thinking that there was a question mark at the end. Do you know what I mean this time? You know, yeah. like the, at the end of every phrase. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. I'm talking a boot? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking a boot? We got folks from Canada listening to us. Hey there, Canadians. Um, so. Hey, what did he say? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what it was. Are we talking about? Okay, so here's our summary sentence. Hey. Charlemagne himself was not personally responsible for any of these innovations. However, the impetus that Charlemagne gave to the Carolingian Renaissance catalyzed these developments. So him wanting ch- changes and encouraging scholarship and encouraging schools brought about, catalyzed, and him having ultimate respect and dependence on the Bible and the church mm-hmm. influenced that too. So, so. So I got a Charlemagne comment when you want to wrap up Charlemagne. Not uh, that we will on this episode, we, but when we're in, in the content before we leave Charlemagne, I have an interesting Okay, comment. so I'm getting to some summary stuff on Charlemagne. Is this a comment that should come before my summary stuff or after? After. Okay. Nothing better demonstrates the remarkability. So these are like, sir, this, this was in, I think, most of this material some of it was in like the first lecture and the last lecture when he's doing these overarching things about Charlemagne in the beginning and in the end. Okay. So I took a little bit from both um, lectures. And so nothing better demonstrates the remarkable ability of Charlemagne than the fact that he survived the embrace of both Napoleon and Hitler. And we're not going to go into the details of this, but both at the time of Napoleon and at the time of Hitler, they used Charlemagne for their purposes, which you think that would alone enough be to let's get rid of Charlemagne. So that's the point that this guy's making. Okay. Well, they used Charlemagne's no, they efforts. Ca- they called on, 
As we read through this further, I think you'll understand more what I mean. Like, like they titled something Charlemagne, or they titled a movement. They they drew back they drew back in history and used that as a quote flag to fly to get people on board. Okay, so we know they now, had reverence to like like the first thing that gets you canceled is comparing anything to Hitler, right? We know that today, right? Like, well, not just, as, no, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we can understand the power of of that statement yeah that nothing better demonstrates the remarkable durability of charlemagne than the fact that he survived the embrace of both napoleon and And survived the embrace meaning yeah that they would reference him back and use his uh reverence as i can't think of a better word or esteem yes and so and you can go listen into these lectures to see particularly how napoleon and Hitler did that. We're not, and not just them, but other people. He goes into great detail how Charlemagne has been referenced over all these years. We're going to do some summary statements about that, but I'm not going to dive into Napoleon and Hitler because it's too much history that we haven't gotten to yet. It's explaining right. too many things that we haven't got to in the timeline. But for instance, post 1945 Europe, which is after 45, uh huh, 1945 after World War II, did not banish Charlemagne from its iconic iconography iconog yeah you know and political culture to the contrary Aachen which was the name of the city that Charlemagne kind of landed in that was his home base particularly toward the end created the Charlemagne prize in 1950 to reward those who promoted west european unity so in 1950 the city of Aachen created the Charlemagne prize like a Nobel Prize or whatever, mm-hmm. to reward those who promoted West European unity. So we're going to talk about that, lead back up to that point, okay? Um, also, that just reminded me of something that I learned when I was watching this that I thought was interesting. You know how we'll say the court, I don't know if you, you think this way, Frank, but if you say, when I'm reading history books and they're talking about the court of this king or particularly in the Middle Ages, the court of that, I imagine in my mind things I've seen in TV or movies or read in books where it's the place where the king is and it's at the king's castle and there's all these people who live there who are part of his court and whatever. Well, during Charlemagne's time, because this was early Middle Ages, his court was wherever he was. So he could show up at somebody, some lord or baron's house and say, I'm going to stay here for two weeks. But it wasn't just him. It was him and all these hundreds of people and things that came with him. Yeah, kind of like Elvis. I'm yes, making a not but a good you, you see what I mean. When he showed up somewhere, he had a group with him, and like a humongous yeah. group of people that like severely impoverished the person that was hosting them. Then they had to provide all this stuff for me. Anyway, I just saw that was kind of crazy. Okay, so back to this: the seventh and early eighth centuries. It was still in the early process of an uncertain recovery. The House of Islam in the seventh and eighth centuries. It was an early process of an uncertain recovery. The House of Islam, after an explosive century of expansion, had itself started to fragment in the 8th century, a process that would eventually lead to the emergence of multiple rival caliphates, which we've kind of mentioned. By contrast, Charlemagne's Frankish world empire seemed well-positioned to continue expanding, bringing about an even, even broader political and cultural unification of Europe. Fast forward 
1,150 years later. So at the time that Charlemagne dies, it looks like we're on the uprise. Europe's coming together. We know all these other things happen in between, which we will be covering in detail. But if you fast forward 150 years later, in 1950, years later, the, in 1950, the German city of Aachen, located on the border with Belgium and the Netherlands, created that annual prize to honor those who worked to foster Western European understanding. The name of the award is the Charlemagne Prize. In 1990, as the Warsaw Pact and then the Soviet Union were disintegrating, I guess the Warsaw Pact must have won it. I'm trying to figure out how, what what these these words got turned around. I'm trying to figure out what they mean. Um, so the Warsaw Pact was a recipient of the Charlemagne Prize at the okay. time that the Soviet Union was disintegrating. Since then, the prize has honored those who worked for the, quote, overall unification of the peoples of Europe, end quote. Not just Western Europe anymore, but all of Europe. Okay, so it's... For everybody, for people working on unification, and among those who have been awarded the Charlemagne Prize are Winston Churchill and Emmanuel Macron, Henry Kissinger and Bill Clinton, Pope Francis, and the entire population of Luxembourg, which is a rather eclectic list. That's just an yeah. eclectic list mm -hmm. of people winning this today. Several departments of the European Commission, which constitutes the executive branch of the European Union, are housed in the European Commission building, which is named the Charlemagne Building which is built in Brussels in 1967. So he's given examples of how Charlemagne's name is being used just in very relatively recent history, right? Two years after moving into the Charlemagne building, the European Commission itself was awarded the Charlemagne Prize. Um, and those who were bent upon European unification of a quite different sort that envisioned by the Europe, then that was that envisioned by the European Union have sometimes embraced Charlemagne to it as a precursor and inspiration. And that was the example of in 1944, Germany's ruling Nazi party organized the Waffian Grenader Brigade of the SS Charlemagne. The SS Charlemagne consisted primarily of French volunteers. After the war, those volunteers stated that they had served the SS Charlemagne because they loved and wanted to defend Europe. So that's why it was named that. And the precursor was the the pretense was we want to love and defend Europe. Admittedly, those these retrospective justifications might have been intended to obscure other motives, as we know now. Yeah. Nonetheless, the fact that veterans of the SS Charlemagne offered the love of Europe as a plausible explanation for their service is evidence of how more than one thousand years after Charlemagne's people, he is still respected across the political spectrum throughout Europe. So these are just examples I thought was cool in this deal of seeing Charlemagne and how he's still referred to today. Would it be as the father of Western Europe? The, the title of this whole lecture series on Wonder Room is the father of Europe. When we were talking about it, we were talking about the father of Western civilization. We were also talking about the father of Christendom in the sense of that concept of a Christian nation and building that culture up from the ground and we'll come City of God and I've got some summary things about that in just a minute but go ahead and say what you were going to say about Charlemagne because my summary well, things aren't producer Wes stepped it up like a month ago maybe six weeks and sent me something and I said send this to Angie and he did not do it oh Wes and it was impressive it was a Instagram or a TikTok video uh-huh of um, there's a television show I don't know where you find it uh, about ancestry 
where you take a celebrity and and yeah yeah they I know that their, show okay, yes I don't you, if you know the show call it out I don't, I don't know, know the name of it but they do their roots they figure out where they came from it might have the title roots it might have the word roots in it anyway one of my favorite act comedic actors and comedians from Saturday Night Live is Bill Hader you know who I'm talking about when I say I Bill Hader mm-hmm. um, he uh, is a descendant of Charlemagne. That's cool that he can know that too. Yeah, because they, they, the video is them telling them him, "Oh, and look, here it is." So, um, producer West Bill Hader meets his fortieth great grandfather. We have to play yeah. it. So anyway, it's his fortieth great grandfather was Charlemagne. That's a long forty. That's a lot of generations in those years. Yeah, and that's why when we were talking about math, and I was using like one person yeah. every seventy-seven years. Yeah, because that's a if lot. If you of- go by generations, it's going to be more people. But if you go by time periods, yeah, then it's minimal people. Yeah. But if you go by generation, you know, somebody dies young, or somebody this, and marries yeah. here, it could be lots of generations yeah. uh, or lineage. I guess is yeah. a better word. So it's kind of cool to find that stuff out. That's really neat. But yeah, he's I his like 40th great grandson. Okay, I got some. This is I'm going to jump back over. Remember, we have this little book we've used before called Think for Yourself About Church History. Yeah, that's a dumb book. And it's a great little book. I'm thinking for myself. I'm not and reading that book. So he's doing some. Yeah, so well, that's, a, that's kind of weird. I'm going to read a book called Think for Yourself, but I won't be thinking for myself if I'm reading your book. No, the point... I. Let me take up for the book. I get it. I'm just being silly. So where the other things we've been doing are like these really thick books and these long details on deep dives into things or big overviews of big periods of time. What this guy does in this book is he tries to make it really simple and he just gives you some facts and some information about history. And then he gives you like, this is the way that has been interpreted. But here are some questions to ask yourself. Okay. So this book is written from a... Um, faithful following of Jesus perspective. So there's going to be discussion in there about, well, what was the Holy Spirit doing? Or what does this say about Christianity? Or And the name of the book is Think for Yourself About Church History. Like here's things we've been told about church history. Now here's some things to think about. So on this period of time where we are right now, the beginning of Christendom in the, and the use of that word and Charlemagne bringing this United Kingdom together and also the Middle Ages, his comments here or probably about maybe the entire Middle Ages, but certainly the middle portion and the medieval portion that we're not, that we're just entering into, that we'll be discussing from 1000 on, right? Which is more the time that we think about of Middle Ages, all right? When we think of that concept. But here's some things that he says. Quote, the Holy Spirit accomplished much in the 600 years after Augustine and Patrick, which we know Augustine was around 400, With the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, most people in Western Europe lived at a bare substance level during this period. So he's going up to 1,000 when he says the 600 years, which is about where we are in our discussion. The monasteries filled the void in health care by inventing hospitals to provide basic care for the sick. They also developed the practice of adopting unwanted children. The pagan Romans had considered it appropriate to simply leave any unwanted baby outdoors until it died, but Christians decried this practice and eventually organized ways in which families or monasteries took in children with no questions asked. It's hard for us to know how deep and accurate was the faith of the average Christian in medieval Europe. 
As literacy was rare in the early centuries and Bibles were extremely hard to come by because they had to be copied by hand, people had to depend on what their priests and their parents taught them. Priests in many places were poorly trained in the gospel. So that's an interesting thing to think about. It's hard for us to know how deep and accurate was the faith of the average Christian in medieval Europe, right? Also, pre-Christian customs and beliefs had deep roots, which we talked about in these Germanic cultures. Just as we find it hard to disentangle the gospel from American consumerism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The individualism, American consumerism and individualism, medieval Europeans grappled with a gospel mixed with warlord ethics and pagan practices. All that was in there together. And we're going to get into some details of that. Oh, I'm excited about that. About warlords and pagans. (laughs) Not Jesus, just warlords and pagans we're excited about. Very likely there were many simple people with deep, imperfectly formed, informed faith. Very likely there were many simple people with deep, if imperfectly informed, faith. And I think that's true as I've looked at all of history since Jesus in almost any time period, you're going to find people with deep faith. And a lot of times it is imperfect and uninformed because they don't have access to the truth themselves, to the word themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was, there were some at this time who went to monasteries for refuge from their violent world and for a real intimate experience with Christ. The more powerful monasteries became infected with worldliness, but that was far from the whole story. And we're going to hear more about the worldliness as we move forward in history, but he's reminding us that's not the whole story. Some of the things the church tried in an effort to get people to take the faith seriously had consequences, and we can look back at with regret. So some of the things that the church did in an effort to try to get the people to take the faith seriously had consequences that we regret now. For instance, how do you get a powerful, aggressive, barbaric warlord to give any thought to charitable works or fair treatment of his serfs? The church tried using the fear of hellfire and to manage the most medieval Christians profoundly afraid of hell, making them profoundly afraid of hell. But fear without the balancing awareness of love and grace is often limited use in motivating people to follow Christ. So scaring people into doing it for consequences rather than the motivation of love and grace. Hmm, that con- sounds very similar constant- to maybe our grow our upbringing, not in our household, but but people- visiting the churches down here, friends. <laughs> I got a question for you, friends. Everybody, blah, blah, okay, blah, blah, hold blah. on. So we can relate, right? <laughs> we see that now. It was about to get too real, wasn't it? No, it was like it's about to take us to a different century. Yeah, a different millennia. Well, so- I can do it in medieval times if you'd like. <laughs> okay, but we'll have an opportunity for that. Um. Now we see that that was not a good motivator, but it wasn't obvious to most well-meaning Christian leaders in the Middle Ages. Okay. Still, for all the heroic efforts of those who labored to Christianize Europe, Europe was no more thorough. This is the point, the big point that we need to remember. Is this the point of the episode? I don't don't know that it's the... No, it's the... It's the big point. It's a point. It's a point that I want you and the listeners to keep in mind as we talk about all of the middle ages okay because we're going to talk about the church here and the church there we've already done that we're going to talk about the pope this and the pope that it just Mm -hmm. becomes more the case as we go forward in the next 500 years 
I want us to remember this point. For all the heroic efforts of those who labored to Christianize Europe, Europe, and we're going to talk about Christian Europe this and Christian Europe that, Europe was no more thoroughly Christianized at the heart level than is modern America. Oh, wow. Say that again. Europe was no more thoroughly Christianized at the heart level than is modern America. So I would even say, I don't know how long ago this book was written. I don't know if it was 10 years, 15 years, 20 years ago. But if you think about modern America of the second half of the 20th century, there was this idea that we heard this a lot when we were younger. This is a Christian nation. This is a Christian. You don't hear that as much now, but that, you know, we're based on Christian principles. And so we would say that America is Christian and we, and in my entire lifetime, Christianity is the primary religion of America, whether that was 80% of the people or 60% of the people or more or less or anywhere in between. So what he's saying is though, at the heart level, Europe, medieval Europe was no more Christian than modern America is at the heart level, at the heart level. Okay, um, the conflict between the cultural cultural veneer of Christianity and the stubbornness of the human heart persisted. I love that. That applies to now. That applies to then. The conflict between the cultural veneer. What's veneer? How it looks. Veneer is that top little covering on the wood. Mm-hmm. When the veneer comes off. You see what it's really made out of. Veneer comes off. The conflict (laughs) between the cultural veneer of Christianity and the stubbornness of the human heart persisted. I don't know. The stubbornness of the human heart persisted. Mm. That conflict between what it looks like on the surface and what's really going on inside persisted. So we're going to find in medieval Europe, this is a little bit skip ahead, I'm not going to get into the details, that everybody practiced all the Christian things as far as whatever the things were that the church told you that you had to do to be a Christian, they were doing them. And what he's saying is look in the heart. Yeah. And like going back to your thing about, well, you didn't go there, but one of the things that I hear talked about, and that's not what this episode's about, but I want to show you how what we're going to be saying about medieval Europe relates that the the church gets accused of hypocrisy. Yeah. And what that means a lot of times is these people say, do this, do this, do this, but then they're not doing that themselves. Or they go to church on Sunday and they act like they're doing all those things, but then what they're doing on Friday night or whatever is completely different, right? So it's that same idea. The conflict between the cultural veneer of Christianity and the stubbornness of the human heart persisted. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were just some interesting quotes that I wanted to pull back in at this time as we kind of close out Charlemagne and then continue to move forward in uh, the uh, Middle Ages because we're getting ready to make a pretty big turn here. We're getting ready to be at the part where when I teach this separately, court part two ends. Part two ends around the year 1000 and we're pushing up against 1000. Wow. Okay. So... I want to get to this little piece right here before we finish out the episode. And seeing as we're getting a little short on time, I'm going to move on ahead with that. Okay. And this is now coming back to the Vikings. We ended 
the last episode with this quick overview from a secular textbook source of how the Vikings came in and created this disruption again of invasions. And we talked about how gruesome those were that disrupted Charlemagne's unity and kind of caused another reformation of the peoples in Europe. And one of our authors said this was every bit, if not more so destructive than the early barbarian invasions that had happened in the fourth and the fifth centuries. Okay. So now we're coming back to that. We're coming back to these Vikings and we talked about them going West. Remember we talked about how they went over even to the North American continent. Yeah. Okay. And, and those settlements died off maybe because of climate changes probably because of climate changes and probably because of the climate changes, the transportation back and forth was not as easy as it had been when they originally went over there. But those died off. And you can do more research on that should you want to, listener. But now we're going to talk about something else. Now I'm jumping back over to the Silk Roads. I went and dug... The Silk Roads. I dug that book back out, okay? And they have a lot to say about the Vikings on this issue. Now, do you remember what part of the world the, the story that comes in the book, The Silk Roads, is centered in, what it's talking about all the time? The Orient. The Orient, the East, Persia, what becomes Babylon, Baghdad, Pakistan, that, that center of the Middle East. Okay. So, in the Viking Age, the bravest and toughest men did not head west, they headed east and south. Many made fortunes and won fame, not just at home, but in the new lands that they conquered. The mark that they left, furthermore, was not minimal and transient as it was in North America. In the East, they were to found a new state, named after the traders, travelers, and raiders who took to the great water systems linking the Baltic with the Caspian and Black Seas. So they're on these rivers that link the Baltic with the Caspian and the Black Seas. These men were known as the Rus, or Ros, perhaps, so it's, yeah, pronounced maybe Ros, I'm going to call them Rus, perhaps due to their distinctive red hair, or more likely, thanks to their prowess with the or, they were the fathers of Russia. So now what he's telling us, that these Vikings who went east became the fathers of Russia. Okay. I find that very interesting. I do too. It was the lure of trade and riches in the Islamic world that initially spurred Vikings to set off on the journey south. So they go east and they go south, and then that puts you, if you look back at our Mediterranean map, which we'll pull these up, we're not going to get to them this episode, so they'll be the first of the next episode, that puts you coming down into the caliphate. So it was the lure of being able to trade with this huge Islamic nation that initially spurred these Vikings to set off on the journey south. From the start of the ninth century, men from Scandinavia began to come into contact with the steppe world, and remember that steppe is that northern area mm -hmm. of that, and also with the caliphate of Baghdad. Settlements began to spread along the Oder, the Neva, and the Volga, and the Dnieper rivers, which are all rivers in that area, with new bases springing up as markets in their own right, and as trading stations for merchants bringing goods to and from the south the long ships that were so celebrated in the popular imagination so the long ships of the vikings were adapted and made smaller by the viking rus to enable them to be carried over short distances from one river or lake to another okay these single hulled boats set out in convoy on a journey that was long and dangerous so they're convoying together a text compiled in constantinople which is 
the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Romans at this time, in the middle of the 10th century, and based on information gathered by Byzantine agents, Roman agents, records the treacherous conditions that had to be negotiated on the voyage south from Scandinavia in the north, where the Vikings come from, all the way across down into Islamic world. A set of rapids on the Nyster was particularly perilous. A the narrow Nyster. D N I E S T E R. A narrow barrage had a lethal set of rocks in the middle of it, which stands out like islands. Quote, stands out like islands. Against then, these then comes the water and wells up and dashes down over the side with a mighty and terrific din. End quote. This obstacle had been nicknamed with dry humor, quote, do not fall asleep. Okay, so it's rapids. It's mm-hmm. rapids on rocks on this river. At the same time, the same text notes that the roofs were intensely vulnerable to being picked off by aggressive raiders who could see the chance for quick resort rewards as exhausted travelers passed through the rapids. Nomads would lie in wait as the boats were hauled out of the water and then attacked, seizing the goods and disappearing into the landscape. Guards were ordered to be on the highest state of alert against sudden assault. So when they had to get out and go over, there were people waiting to assault them, right? Black seas, um, they needed to be robust, robust to say the least. Quote, they have great stamina roots like palm trees, end quote. But more importantly, they were always armed and dangerous. Quote, each of them carries an axe, a sword, and a knife, end quote. They behaved like gangs of hardened criminals. And there was a lot These of... These are the st- Vikings that are yes. down having to defend themselves as they go through this and, tight and have to get this what it's describing the people that it takes to get there there was some very x-rated things that they did too that i'm not including here so that the people who will that be on the kofi that was for the extra (laughs) content yeah that's if you want yes whatever but they behave like gangs of hardened criminals so you can think about yeah inappropriate things gangs of hardened criminals would do for one they thought alongside they fought alongside each other against their enemies and they were suspicious of each other if anyone fell ill they were left behind Mm. okay they looked the part too Quote, from the tips of his toes to his neck, each man is tattooed in dark green with de- designs and, and so forth. End quote. These were tough men for tough times. Okay. They were involved in the trade of wax, amber, and honey, as well as fine swords, which were widely admired in the, admired in the Arabic-speaking world. However, it was another line of business that was the most lucrative, the source of vast quantities of money that washed northwards back up the river systems of Russia towards Scandinavia. This is demonstrated by the many fine silks from Syria, Byzantium, and even China that have been found in across Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Norway. So they find these silks from that time, which is what one of the things these people in these lands, the Byzantine, the Chinese, the Syrians, the Islamic would have used to pay Mm -hmm. for were silk. So the fact of the evidence of all these silk shows that there was a lucrative trade going on. These must have represented only a tiny fraction of the textiles that were brought back. These were the only ones that survived. So these are the ones that hadn't survived. 
But it's the coin record, however, that speaks loudest about the scale of business conducted with faraway regions. So think about this. You're doing archaeology. You find, like today, let's say that today somebody in our area found coins from, say, the Ingos or people from South America, then they would know that there was trade mm-hmm. back whatever the date of the coin is going on with people from where the coin came from. Right. Right. So the coin record is really the loudest record about the level of business and where it was. Astonishingly, astonishingly rich coin finds line the great rivers heading north and have become, been recovered all over northern Russia, Finland, Sweden, and above all, in Gotland, which is Sweden's largest island to the way far north, which shows that the Viking Rus made enormous sums from commerce with the Muslims and the fringes of the caliphate of Baghdad. So these Islamic coins are found way up there and all along the rivers. One leading specialist in the history of currency estimates that the amount of silver coins brought back from trading with the lands of Islam numbered in the tens and perhaps even hundreds of millions. Mm. In modern terms, it was a multi-billion dollar industry. Wow. So the rewards for that kind of travel in those places needed to be substantial to merit the distance and the dangers involved in traveling from Scandinavia, which was a journey of nearly 3,000 miles. So it is perhaps not surprising that the goods had to be sold in large volumes in order to genuate substantial profits. So our cliffhanger at the end of this episode is, Mm -hmm. what is this product, don't guess, that they're bringing all that way and making all this money on? And that's where we'll go in the next episode. And we might actually start with that and then come to the maps at the end since we ended at this point. Cocaine. Good guess. Um, but I said don't guess, but that's okay. So well, so to summarize, I think, you know, we have listeners that like for us to sum up the episode. So the episode's kind of summed up in three sections. One section okay. being the details, details under, Charl- under, Charlemagne. under Charlemagne. He's going to mimic mm-hmm. me so that... No, I'm just remembering them. The one is the details under Charlemagne. About, like, the Bible. The Bible. And, and the scripting of it, and teaching, the, and the education in general, literacy, education, literacy. literacy. That's a good way to put it. Um, and and then, then the second would be the second thing. <laughs> the summary of Charlemagne, which also includes the summary of the time from a heart Christian perspective. Okay, yeah. so we talked a little about how Charlemagne is still revered because things are still being named after him, and we still see him as the father of Europe. A father of Europe. And then we have this idea that we don't want to forget that just because it's going on in this on the veneer doesn't mean that it's happening in the heart. In the heart. We gotta check that out. And then we jumped back to the The Vikings. Vikings and, and their trade. To the east. To the east. And, and a very lucrative trade it is and a very dangerous route it is. And we're gonna come back and yeah. find out what they're trading. Which it's obvious. Drugs. <laughs> so thank you for listening to this episode yeah, of History Through the Eye. Do I have anything? Well, there's a mystery bag, but we don't have time to get to it. Yeah, we're going to come to that. And also, I want to throw one little thing in here. You mentioned Elvis during the episode, and I mm-hmm. didn't go to it, but I really wanted to. We saw the movie. Well, good. We'll and I did like it. you did. I started well, doing this deep dive into everything Elvis. Well, I'm still, I'm in my second book. Yeah, so we can talk about that when we come back if we want to. <laughs> okay. Lots of Elvis. All right. Glad y'all are here, and we will see you. Golly, the next episode. Is the big one. It's a new, it's a new, whatever you call it, when you go to another 
uh, it's a group it's a new of decade. Tens. Yeah, it's not really a decade. It's a, it's a new set. It's a new decatron. Episode seventy is coming up. See you there. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.